Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Ray Blanchard, a semi-retired researcher in the area of human sexuality who worked for 15 years in a gender identity clinic that screened transsexual applicants for sex reassignment surgery and authorized government insurance payment for the procedures. He also worked for another 15 years in a clinic for the assessment of paraphilic interest in male sex offenders. His research projects have included autogonophilia, the paraphilic tendency in some males to be sexually aroused by the thought or image of themselves as female, and the fraternal birth order effect, the finding that older brothers increase the odds of homosexuality in later born males. I welcome Ray Blanchard to Savage Minds. I remember when I came back to the States from the Middle East at one point in the late 90s, there was a T added to the LBG. And when I saw the tea added, I remember this. I was in a gay bar and I said, what the heck is tea? And then, because I thought bisexual, trisexual, like, you know, that was my logical jump. And someone said to me, transgender. And I said, whoa, what has that to do with sexuality? That has nothing to do with us. How did this happen from where you are as a practitioner in the field of psychology? How did you experience this? Well, I I think I should go back and explain to you what life was like in the late 1960s, the 1970s, the 1980s, and early 90s, the days when gender identity clinics were being established because the, um, the topics that were discussed, the climate of opinions, bears no resemblance whatsoever to the things that we've just been talking about. And I I think it's important. I would like to kind of go over some of the differences because I have followers on Twitter who kind of occasionally write these accusatory tweets of, you know, what were you people back in the 70s thinking that you unleashed this horror on the world? And the concept that there was a cabal of patriarchal monsters who were planning to create an army of of trans to take over women's spaces, it just bears no relationship to what's going on now. So I'd like to kind of discuss some of what it was like then and how things, before we get to how things changed, I kind of want to stress just what things were before they changed. In the first place, you know, uh, so I, I worked at a gender identity clinic from 1980 to 1995. Uh, and uh, at which point I left and I and I, I took over the research directorship of a clinic for the assessment of sex offenders. It was a career move up for me. But the clinic that I started working at in 1980 was part of the first wave of establishment of gender identity clinics, uh, usually at university-affiliated hospitals. Back in those days, Uh, Among clinicians who worked with trans patients, the universal assumption was that transsexualism is a psychopathology or a species of mental disorder. Nobody thought of it as anything but a mental disorder. There was no concept that this was really an aspect of political oppression. When I say that everybody involved regarded transsexualism as a mental disorder, it doesn't mean that people thought that transsexuals were barking mad. Everybody understood perfectly well that transsexuals could function at adequate or even outstanding levels of competence in many other aspects of life. They simply had this one 
quite often encapsulated area of psychological functioning that was causing them a great deal of distress, in some cases, sufficient distress that their whole lives were overshadowed or, or tainted by their emotional, uh, their emotional problems with their, their biological sex. So that's a very different uh, thing from the attitude now, whereas I actually got suspended from Twitter for 24 hours for saying transsexualism is a, I regard transsexualism as a mental disorder, even though it's still listed in the DSM as a mental disorder. So I mentioned that everybody assumed that transsexualism was a mental disorder. Secondly, in those days, all gender clinics were gatekeeping organizations. Their function was to screen out applicants for sex reassignment surgery. They were not there as cheerleaders. They were there to make sure that the only people who progressed to medical measures were those for whom there was no other viable solution to their psychological problems. Thirdly, the way that patients were selected at all of this generation of um, gender clinics was that there was a real life test and a patient was required to live full time and present as the opposite sex for some period of time. Now, at our the clinic that I worked at, patients had to present as the opposite sex and live as the opposite sex full time for a minimum period of two years before they were even considered eligible for approval for surgery. And during those two years, they had to either be working full time or attending school full time, or if they were of an age where retirement would be appropriate, then they had to do some bona fide charity work in the opposite sex role. And furthermore, they had to present us with documentation that proved that they were doing these things. They could bring us payslips from employers. We couldn't legally demand to see their income tax forms, but many patients simply found it convenient to show us that they had filed their income tax as Mary Smith and not Martin Smith. Uh, so they couldn't be just staying home, ordering pizza delivery and putting on a dress and saying, I'm living as the opposite sex. Thirdly, many, many fewer patients were getting, uh, were transitioning. In those years, the 85 to 90 period, uh, 80 to 95 period, my clinic screened all patients from the province of Ontario who wanted to have provincial health reimbursement for sex reassignment. And several other Canadian provinces also sent their patients to us um, and if we approved them, then they were, they would get reimbursement for sex reassignment from their own provincial health insurance plans. The point I'm getting to is we were seeing patients from a large portion of Canada, which is not a tiny country, and we approved roughly a dozen per year. So the scale of the thing was quanta less than we're talking about now. And therefore, a lot of things that now people see as huge problems like the great washroom issue. It wasn't that there was some philosophical or medical, medical ethical solution that, that was accepted then that isn't now. It's just that it wasn't enough of a problem for anybody to ruminate about. Yes, it makes a difference if you're a female and you're in a bathroom and once in your lifetime, 
you see someone who's clearly male in a dress, as opposed to this can happen now, women are told this can happen at any time, especially in countries and states well, where this is allowed. Yeah. And it's not as if there's, it's not as if we had a rationale for this. It was just something that was so rarely occurred. It wasn't worthwhile calling in the philosophers and the medical ethicists for something that might, as you say, happen once in the lifetime of a woman and lead to no incident. And, and I would guess the other, the other difference then was that people who presented were presenting for full sex reassignment. If they were males, they wanted a vaginoplasty. If they were females, they wanted construction of a male chest contour. Phalloplasty was rare, still is, because it's not a particularly satisfactory surgery. Um, we didn't have patients come in saying, I'm non-binary and I'd like my breast removed because I don't really feel like a woman, but I don't want to be masculinized in any other way. I just don't like my breasts and would like to have them removed. We, do, we weren't having patients coming in with these kinds of requests to be in some way de-sexed so they could live as asexuals more comfortably. So that whole issue that also did not necessitate any philosophizing or ruminating. Um, if we had seen such patients, we would have just said, we're in the business of making people less freakish, not more. That's the end of my speech about that, but I, I wanted you to see where I'm coming from, what, what my history was of my involvement in this field. And how long have you been in this field? Well, as I said, I, I was mainly based in a gender identity clinic from 1980 to 1995. After 95, I went, uh, most of my time was spent in a clinic for the assessment of sex offenders. I have written only a few things about gender since 95, but, you know, in certain, in certain spaces, like on Twitter, uh, it seems like I'm still very actively involved in gender because I, I tweet about that and I tweet about that because most of my followers want to know what I have to say on that head. It's a, quite a coincidence for me when I was doing some of my doctoral research in Morocco, I came across uh, Georges Bourou. I'm, I'm sure you know who he is, but he's one of the people who was taking in a lot of sex reassignment patients from many countries around the world, even Europe, but Brazil and various parts of Asia. And he got to be known quite well. He's a French physician who um, basically mainstreamed for certain, mostly men who identified as transgender, sexual reassignment surgery. He made new techniques that became adopted by other clinics. And his most famous patients were like April Ashley, Jan Morris, uh, Cuxinel. And he had a very profound effect on the whole culture of what was then transsexualism. Uh, you'd see people referring to him in dinnertime conversation as if this was something very 
uh, haute couture, if you know what I mean. Like this was something really elite and special. And at the same time, there were transgender clinics or transsexual clinics, as they were then called in North America, not just where you were living, but also in places like Wisconsin, right? In the places that you wouldn't even think. How did these clinics become so pervasive then from when you began in your practice to today? We've seen explosions, not just in case numbers, but in clinic numbers. Well, there had been a wave of clinics established in the period of the late 60s through the 70s. And as I said, my clinic was one of those established during that wave. During that wave, uh, I think it was, how can I put this? Doesn't sound too snotty. You know, people who were kind of trendy, physicians who were kind of trendy, it was the end thing. So a bunch of clinics got established at, mostly at uh, hospitals that had a university affiliation. Um, and some of them lasted for a while, many of them closed as people, you know, lost interest and moved on or discovered that trans patients weren't always that, that easy to deal with. Um, so that was one thing, but then what's happening now, I mean, I, I haven't kept my finger on the pulse of it really, because as I explained to you, I then became involved in work on sex offenders and stuff. And I had no reason to follow step-by-step step what was happening socially with gender clinics. But uh, a couple of things happened. One was that trans activists reframed transsexualism as a political problem rather than a clinical problem. And at, at, along with this, they aligned trans activism with the woke side in the culture war. So now there were a lot of people prepared to say, you know, it's, it's old fashioned, it's, it's wrong side of history-ish to talk about transsexualism as a mental disorder. It's just, I don't know what their, their alternative formulation is, but it, it's a political issue. And, um, and this now attracted a different kind of person to trans care. And it encouraged a lot of people to come out uh, as trans who might not have come out as trans because now uh, a married man of age 40 with two children coming out as trans is stunning and brave. And uh, nobody would say, oh, poor chap, he's having to do this in order as the only way of coping with significant psychological distress. It's seen uh, on the contrary as, as something, you know, admirable, wonderful in itself. Well, there's certainly a lot of cheerleading that's gone on from all sides. I'm sure you've seen some of the conferences that have been recorded on YouTube, where you have one clinician in the States who says that if children, young children as young as two, pull out their her barrettes from her hair, she must be a boy. And other nonsense like this that have been you know, brought on by practicing therapists, which I find on the one hand fraudulent and shocking. And on the other, this is going without any kind of official counterweight by like the APA. What has the APA done about these kinds of incidents where we're seeing some very outrageous behavior, especially towards children by clinicians we're you know making the claim that if a child removes her barrettes she must be a boy that's insane I'm, have you seen that 
I, yes, and I know who you're talking about. Um, when you say the APA, do you mean the American Psychiatric Association or the American Psychological Association? I meant the, the American Psychological Association, but even the other APA as well. well I, I think the American Psychological Association has solidly jumped on the cheerleading bandwagon. Um, and the American Psychiatric Association, it's still in, although the name got changed from gender identity disorder to gender dysphoria, they basically, in DSM-5, repackaged the same diagnostic uh, entity with a different name to make it more palatable to gender patients. Well, this is my question for what you were saying before, when you're saying, you know, let me frame what's happened before this became the kind of social, I will call it a social contagion today, because you you were going through, in fact, the, the era before activism. Now we know that the DSMs have been kowtowing to a certain degree to this in the sense of, I mean, I know that you were involved in the DSM-5 where the word gender dysphoria is the new word, the new term, because it changed from the DSM-4, which was gender identity disorder. And earlier in the DSM-3, it was listed under a psychosexual disorder. Now, here's my question for you. We know that we change. We change as people. Societies change. You know, there was the Nuremberg trials where suddenly all of Europe and uh, the world had to confront the horrors of what happened under Nazi Germany, you know. Uh, we, we had to also understand that there were people who knew full well what was going on. So our social and historical knowledge came kicking and screaming out of the, the darkest corners of our history. Okay, but why would a medical or socio-psychological condition or even an emotional issue, and because I'm not only referring to gender dysphoria necessarily here, because we've seen the pushback in other areas. I have written an article about chronic Lyme disease. I'm afraid to say it. I just said it. Please don't write me hate mail, anyone. And I'm sure if you have colleagues that have worked in that, you know what they have faced. I interviewed the head of the Royal College of Medicine, who specialized for years in chronic fatigue syndrome. Again, please don't send me hate mail. Send it to Joe Biden at the whitehouse.gov because <laughs> I have never in my life had an article. I had an article shut down on this subject within an hour by a leftist publication. They were trolled and did it totally un unethical, journalistically speaking, but it made sense as to why the person from the Royal College of Medicine in London told me about how he has to have to this day, even though he works on post-traumatic stress now for many years, for 20 years, he still has to have his mail x-rayed. So my question to you is, when you were on the panel of the DSM-5 examining this very entry, how is it that organized lobbies have the power to change what scientists and, or let's say specialists in your case, psychologists or psychiatrists know best. We have this kind of managerial approach to everything today. We see it 
around mandates and coronavirus. We see this around education. We see this around uh, even professors getting student reports and reviews, which weighs more heavily into their getting tenure or not in North America than actual peer-reviewed journals, let's say. And we're seeing this with the DSM. Why would something be lightened? I'm going to use that kind of euphemism, but where a psychosexual disorder is made into a term that placates the lobby, while at the same time, you know, years later, you get the angry, angry tweets from largely women who say, wait, you've set this all in motion. How does that happen? And why does that happen? Well, I, I have to measure my words here for a variety of reasons. One is that everybody uh, involved in the DSM had to take an oath of silence uh, that they, they're not going to talk about internal matters. But uh, there's some, and I, I also don't want to, you know, I badmouth people. Um, the D, there was a, a DSM-5 committee or work group, it was called, for sexual and gender identity disorders. It was subdivided into three parts. One group of four people worked on gender identity disorder, one group of four people worked on paraphilias, and one group of four people worked on sexual dysfunctions, meaning like difficulty having, uh, reaching orgasm, uh, you know, premature ejaculation, that kind of stuff. So there were 12 people, but divided into four sub-work groups. I was the chair of the paraphilias sub-work group. I was not involved in the work group that was handling gender identity disorders. I never attended any of their meetings. Uh, I had no input into what they did. I wasn't happy with a lot of what they did, and I'm sure that they knew that I wouldn't be happy with what they did. But, you know, when we all met for dinner after the day's conferencing, the topic was just politely avoided in my presence, and that's how it was. Now, if you're asking me why those people uh, to whose deliberations I was not private made uh, soften the language of gender, it's simply because, you know, they wanted to be seen as woke and as nice and as allies to trans people. But Ray, you've practiced psychology for many years and I wrecked my brain because I do work in ethnopsychoanalysis. And I keep wondering what kind of psychological situation has ever been responded to by that group making a huge lobby politically, governmentally, institutionally, and through threats. And where if you do not recognize them as they see themselves, you will be mandated even to have the police at your doorstep, for instance. And I kept thinking, why have we been pressured by, in Canada, it's huge. In the US and all the Anglophone countries, basically, this is a huge push where there's been institutional capture and you can lose your job. If, if I don't say she to refer to someone that I regard as male, and I'm thinking, where did this politics of kindness emanate from? Because we, like me, I'm not this person, psychoanalyst, or I'm not their therapist. Why has the pressure been put on the public to accommodate what many people would call a delusion or a personal self-image that everyone has the right to, 
But like if you come to my house and I take out a gun and say, Ray, is that the best chocolate mousse you've ever had? You better say yes. You know, this is what a lot of people are pushing back on. Even myself, who I've had friends throughout my life who've identified as transgender. I did the pronoun thing. But when I saw what emanated over years and years of this tumbleweed of pronouns and thinking it was just a few people, just a few people, and it suddenly one day we wake up and it's not a few people, it's a huge lobby. It seems to be steeped in misogyny. I hate to say it just like that, but I am. Um, I hate to say it because I think there are exceptions. I think the, the those offering the true trans model, um, <laughs> this becomes complex because we can all make exceptions for people we like, right? And you can lie to me and say, yeah, it's the best chocolate mousse and your haircut looks really good. But the reality is that we all make these exceptions of being polite in private discussion when it's rendered fiat, when it's rendered public and forced, that's where the ball, you know, the ball game changes, I think, for people. And so was there ever a moment when psychologists thought that it was a good idea to that people should accommodate these identities? Because the way, what we're hearing on the streets is, we have to abide by people's preferred pronouns. That's a thing now, preferred pronouns. And it's not just the name change, like from Dennis to Diane. Everyone can get on board with that. It's not only legal, it's just a name. But pronouns are somehow more visceral, right? Because you're telling me not to see what I'm seeing. Well, I understand what you're saying. Um, I Again, I go back to the realignment of uh, of transsexualism as being seen as a political issue rather than a clinical one. The trans activists did a very, when they allied themselves with the woke movement, they, they, they appropriated all of the apparatus that was being used to talk about race relations in the US, you know? And this became the model for how you talked about trans people. Trans people, are treated as people of color. So just as you know, you are obliged to use the words that people of color want to be used for themselves, um, you are obliged to use the words that trans people want to use for themselves. Um, just as you might feel that people of color or who have been traditionally discriminated against need special consideration in certain circumstances. Trans people, because they've historically been oppressed, uh, need special consideration in certain circumstances. So all of that apparatus of, of uh, that was used to get equitable treatment for people of color and for women was taken more or less wholeness bolus and applied to trans people. All that apparatus was transferred to trans people. True. I've noticed that myself, that the civil rights era language was co-opted, as well as, uh, bizarrely, some of the feminist talking points was also co-opted within that movement. Yeah, that, that would be possible to do, because I don't think the trans movement really has a fully coherent uh, 
theoretical view. So they're going to co-opt whatever language is convenient for the goal at hand. Um, and if that language uh, is the language of civil rights as developed in the context of anti-racism and, uh, and feminism, then they'll use that language. If the language sounds feminish, <laughs> feminist-ish, then they'll use that language. And it's very easy to, uh, to confuse the issues for, you know, for, for gain purposes. I, I, one of the things I learned from being on Twitter, because I, you know, I'm not a public intellectual, I'm not a philosopher, I have no particular interest in social phenomena, but I realized eventually that the word gender was co-opted by two very different groups for two very different purposes. And that has led to a lot of confusion. The word gender was used by feminists to refer to role expectations that are imposed by society on women. The, role, the word gender in the area of trans comes via work on children with disorders of sex development, that is intersex children. And that's why we have this language of sex assigned at birth. There are certain cases of infants born with genitalia so ambiguous that deciding what sex to raise them as was arbitrary and they were assigned a sex at birth. Um, and the people like John Money who began their work with human intersexes then dragged this language along with them when they started seeing transsexuals. But the consequence of it is that in in the trans area, gen, or for feminists, gender means what you do uh, because of socialization, whereas in trans, gender means what you do in spite of your socialization. It now actually has two opposite meanings. Well, I would add on to this a bit. When I was teaching at Montreal, you know, there's no term for, we use the word gender in English because the gender is not genre, that has another meaning altogether. But what I did notice from the use of this term for money, I mean, money is an interesting character who comes to the US. It was the era of Kinsey and he gets involved in sociological and sexual studies of such. And he was fully steeped in what is gender. I mean, he, he came into it because of the travesty of a child who due to a botched circumcision had no penis. And his fixing of gender was actually a fixing of a damaged body, if, you know, of a harmed body by one unnecessary medical procedure with yet another. And it's no coincidence that Money started this work at the height of the atomic household, as Christina Zarlango refers to. She's a a scholar of American studies, but you know her work focuses on this era post World War II when women were pushed out of the factories so their husbands could take up the roles and their brothers could take up those roles again. And they were forced into the house. And hence we saw in the 50s a, a rise in the use of Valium and alcohol amongst housewives. These women were trapped in this double bind of a world they had to leave while being put back into the box that they were happy to have exited. Gender from the 1950s is a very toxic and explosive element. So 
it's not coincidental, it's not even ironic that money fixed one kind of bodily mistake, a surgical mistake with another. And, you know, I'm sure you know the the end of that story of his convincing the parents of this small child to have this child turned into a girl, it ended in suicide. Well, yeah. I mean, I actually knew John Money slightly. I had dinner with him once or twice. I mean, he's much older than me. Of course, he's dead now. He's much older than me, but we overlapped. Um, so that I knew him. I know his history. Um, I probably tend to see his career more in terms of his personal career, as opposed to John Murray as a cork bobbing on the sea of social uh, uh, social changes. He he was a uh, a psychologist, actually, not a physician. He went to work in the I think it was called neurohormonal unit at Johns Hopkins. His first work was uh, he wasn't the first to do this. He was the second person to study intersex children as a way of getting at the problem of are sex differences nature or nurture induced. Actually, the first study like that had been done by a guy named uh, Albert Ellis, but his work isn't widely known. So John Money did the second study. That was his first um, his introduction to gender it was a, a you know it seemed like a reasonable question at the time. We'll look at these kids with ambiguous biological sex, and we'll see does their rearing turn them into boys or girls. So that was how he started out. Then he adopted the view that it was rearing that was determinative of what the person would later identify as as male or female. So he had been dining out on this view, had become quite famous for a psychologist and was well established in that position before the case of the uh, the Reimers case came along. He applied his theories to Reimers holus bolus and then of course the Reimers uh, reassignment did not take and and there was that uh, catastrophic outcome. Uh, my money had plenty of time to say and publish or um, well about my famous case it didn't quite work out as I had originally published but he chose to tough it out and I think that was a disastrous career decision for him because then uh, John Colapinto wrote a whole wrote a whole book about him um, which made him look very bad um, this is where I was getting at with him coming, you know, to the States at this time when Kinsey was a hot button topic, both positively for those curious about these burgeoning clinics of sexology and then sexual behaviors units like the one at Johns Hopkins. And remember, you know, WPATH started pretty much right after the John Hopkins Clinic was shut down in 1979. And my question is this for you, because I know you work in the field of psychology. I just have to wonder why the cure, as it were, and I'm putting cure in quotes here, why the cure for men who feel that they were, as the saying went in the day, born in the wrong body, which you know, I reject, I don't think anyone is born in the wrong body, but why hormones instead of, well, 
if you feel like a woman, why don't you go and clean my house up and shut up a bit? You know what I mean? Like, this is why women have been pushing back on this because for our entire lives, and again, I grew up in Kitchener, Waterloo, you know, like I was playing hockey on the streets with the boys. And, uh, you know, every so often, even in the seventies, I'd hear, you're not supposed to be on out here. This isn't for girls, but I did have to push a lot in my life and certain things that I did because of being female. So where did it come about even for money, even for, I mean, you know, making a horrible reference now, but the first trans sexual operation was actually one conducted during the Weimar Republic on upon a woman where they tried to transplant a penis. Of course she died, but why are these interventions medical or hormonal rather than talk therapy, the kind of thing you do. And there's a taboo around the talk therapy, as I'm sure you know. Well, let me sort out a few things here. I think we have to distinguish what was done with intersex infants uh, who have a, a, a clear medical, physical abnormality from what is done with adults who have perfectly normal bodies but a psychological problem. Sure. In the first place, in the days of Kinsey and in the days of John Money and in the days of uh, the, this was also roughly around the high watermark of psychoanalysis, all of these viewpoints might seem very different. But in fact, zooming out, they're all um, uh, nurture points of view. John, you know, John Money. Uh, John Money, Freud, and and his contemporary psychoanalysts in the 60s, uh, 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 Alfred Kinsey, they all thought that rearing was predominant over any biological factor. So they all they all were singing from the same hymn book in a certain way. With regard to John Money's treatment of this kid who got the um, uh, ablated penis as the result of a circumcision accident, uh, they reared him as a girl because in John Money's theory, uh, which was perfectly congruent with what most other people thought at that time, rearing would uh, turn the child into a perfectly happy girl. And the other reason for that decision was, and I've actually heard surgeons say exactly this, it's easier to make a hole than a pole. So. There was every, in the context of that time, that would have been the natural decision. We can more easily make a vagina than repair the penis. And this kid is so young that by our rearing procedures, he will end up as a perfectly happy girl. So that was the rationale. It turned out not to be right, partly because they were underestimating uh, the role of genetic sex in the brain. That's the story on that. That's a different thing altogether from transsexualism in an anatomically normal male or female. Now, I understand that I've been asked a thousand times on Twitter and elsewhere, why do people ever treat transsexual individuals with hormones or surgery instead of talk therapy? And the simple answer is that for a lot of patients, talk therapy just doesn't work. 
talk therapy works for certain kinds of model, mild disorders, for the walking well, maybe for other conditions that are serious but can be approached perhaps like maybe anorexia nervosa. But for some transsexual patients, talk therapy doesn't do much. It doesn't relieve their suffering. It doesn't stop them from obsessing about wanting to be the opposite sex. And this is the reason that uh, medical interventions, medical transition was and still is undertaken for transsexual patients. I think it's now being grossly overused, but I am not opposed to the use of hormonal or surgical transition for carefully selected patients for whom nothing else has proven effective at eliminating their distress. And I'm talking about adult patients. So to me, it's a pragmatic matter. It's not a philosophical matter. I think a lot of people would agree with what you've just said, with one exception in the sense of, well, where is it really needed? And two, um, a, a subtext to that would be, where is the evidence that this really helps? Now, I know that there are people all over Twitter who say, here's this study and that study, but for every study that says that sex reassignment surgery helps, there are studies that show that that's in the honeymoon period or that it's really not conclusive or that statisticians will often say that you don't get as good a accurate response by asking someone about a major life decision they made in a in a way that is designed to elicit disappointment from them i mean will people be apt to say i'm really not happy that i made a major medical intervention on my body and will never be able to have children again i mean i do have to wonder to what degree the satisfaction is what is said to be so, if you catch what I'm saying here. Yeah, I understand what you're saying, that uh, it, it would, be, would be too threatening uh, to say, I, I did this to myself and it was a mistake. Exactly. I mean, no one wants to be, even be wrong about voting for Biden, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all I can say is that uh, at the clinic I worked at, as I explained the situation to you, we were, uh, if not exactly a national clinic, a half national clinic, and patients who wanted to revert back to their original sex uh, sometimes did come to us because they wanted help in getting their breasts back or, or help in whatever could be helped with. And we had a pretty high follow-up rate. Uh, because we, unlike clinics now, who I think it's like one and done, we contacted patients every single year and invited them back for a follow-up appointment, whether they had contacted us or not. We really tried to, to keep contact with everybody, and we kept contact when I was there with over 80% of uh, patients we had seen. And there were a few who regretted the decision to undergo sex reassignment and who reverted to their original sex. But in those days, it was a small percentage. However, this was under a very stringent gatekeeper model. These people were very highly selected in the first place. And today the model is more clientele oriented, is it not? That's one way to put it. <laughs> 
my way of looking at it is it's an abdication of clinical responsibility, but they see it as, as client-centered. Yeah, well, I say this because I have friends who are psychiatrists uh, who told me that they could no longer refer to their patients as patients and had to use the word client. Um, and it's happened in all areas, not just in psychiatry or psychology, but it's happened in, uh, in academia even. Um, I had a, a memo from my university referring to my students as clients. Uh, that was the subject of a departmental meeting even. Um, now here's, here's where you enter the picture in a very contentious manner. You know where we're heading right now, right? Your work on paraphilias, right? And yeah. your work specifically on autogynephilia, which I tell you, Ray, I've told women directly who've asked me about an article they're writing or something they want to research, I would tell them, stay away from the subject. Not because I don't believe your work on it, but because it's that toxic of a social media subject, right? Yeah. Can you Tell our listeners about your work on this and uh, with the kind of pushback you've had. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, at the time that I started working in gender, I realized that the biological males were a very diverse lot. And uh, I was not by any means the first person to have this perception. Practically all experienced clinicians who worked with gender dysphoric patients agreed that uh, the biological males are very heterogeneous. And the only disagreement among cl clinical researchers what was um, how many different types are there and how should we characterize them. So I, I wasn't coming out of nowhere with this. What I finally uh, decided was that there were two basic groups of biological males. One group were very similar to ordinary homosexual males, with the difference that whereas many ordinary homosexual males have some girl-like behavior in boyhood, which they grow out of, these were uh, homosexual males with a lot of girl-like behavior in childhood, which they never grew out of, which in fact uh, became cemented into their personalities and made it impossible for them to relate to the world except as female. That was one group. The other group was more mysterious and, um, and, and, and had more variability. And these were males who were, seemed to be clearly heterosexual, uh, they were often married to women, often had children. They were presenting at much later ages. Some were presenting at the age of 40, 50, 60, even over 70, saying that they, uh, their feelings of being feminine had now become unendurable and they needed to do whatever was necessary to live out the remainder of their lives as, as females which often entailed getting a divorce and uh, quite often also resulted in alienation from their, from their children. I found that the history of these men in many cases included masturbation in women's 
underwear or women's bathing suits or something intimate to do with women's apparel at an early stage of their lives when they're entering puberty at age 12, 13, 14, sometimes even later. So I was exercised by the question, what is the link between masturbating into your mother's panties at age 14 and wanting to have your male genitals removed and replaced by a vagina at age 45. And I finally came up with this concept of autogynophilia, which is that these males are erotically aroused by the thought or image of themselves as female. And that this, 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 uh, this connects the clearly fetishistic activity with underwear with a later motivation uh, to have a, a male genitals extirpated and replaced with a vagina. When I wrote that, I wrote it in a neutral clinical way and I published it in journals that had print circulations of like a thousand copies. And I thought I was writing for a handful of clinicians in the entire world, but it, it kind of, then the internet came along and, and it got out. And what was some of the pushback you experienced for having this? Because, you know, just mentioning autogynophilia on Twitter will result in a flame war, as I'm sure you've seen and been participating, you know, been the victim of even. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I mean, fortunately for me, I published those papers uh, before trans got reframed as a political problem and became uh, a subsection of the culture war. So I was able to publish that stuff without too much trouble. I think if I were try if I were working now and were publishing those papers, I would undoubtedly be fired by my employer under pressure from activists. But well, certainly. I think, yeah. Um, so, you know, I get called a lot of nasty names, but because I'm retired, uh, you know, I'm kind of invulnerable. They can call me nasty names, but, you know, I'm like, whatever. <laughs> you know, there's, there's nothing anybody can do to me uh, as a historical accident because of when I published and the fact that I got out of Dodge before, before things got too hot. Well, you published the foreword to Men Trapped in Men's Bodies by Anne Lawrence, which came out around 2012 or so, 2013, correct? Correct. Was there any pushback then? Well, I mean, I'm constantly, if, if you would go online and Google my name, you'd constantly see, you know, Blanchard the Fraud, Blanchard whose work has been debunked. I th I'd never, I've never seen the word debunked so many times in my life. It's like a homework <laughs> epithet. You know, Rosie Finger Dawn, debunked Blanchard. Uh, uh, and, and it's, it's, uh, and and it's going to continue that way in those circles because the notion of autogonophilia is too threatening for a certain kind of transsexual. Now, oddly enough, I went out of my way to say uh, the observation that transsexualism has some erotic component at one stage of its development does not mean that these patients should be excluded from consideration for sex reassignment. I went out of my way to say that 
nor did I ever say that transsexualism in these cases is nothing but a fetish. In fact, I went out of my way to say the opposite, but they fill in the blanks with their fears of what I might have said. Um, well, that happens even if you use the term. I mean, the, you know, uh, the editor of this collection, I presume, because these are a series of stories, and Lawrence is also transsexual, but you can't say transsexual because that's not PC. But I believe I've seen Anne Lawrence refer to transsexualism various times. So these terms that are even like, you know, Jane Rogers, who's a very well-known actor, uh, Andy Warhol films, and was called a transphobe. Uh, Jane Rogers is one of the most famous and early transitioners in the scenes in New York, right? So we're seeing where even transgender people or trans transsexuals, because some of them prefer that term, are being called out for saying, you can't say transsexual. And it's like, oh, really? So now the terms are up for grabs, depending not on who says them, but the woke culture of today. Like you mentioned earlier, this is about politics more than the profession of psychology or the patient's own personal, private psychological life, right? And it, it, it's both a paradox and curious. I mean, it's fascinating for someone like me to look at, but it's also troubling because as I'm sure you've noticed, you're on Twitter and the kind of externalisms that are happening emotionally, not just about trans, but everything. Again, go back to last week's election, go back to anything about American politics over the last year. People are externalizing some very strange <laughs> behaviors because of a simple disagreement. People no longer can sit down and disagree and continue sipping on their tea or beer or whatever. Now it's, you know, debunked. You're debunked, Ray. And, you know, I'm going to out you and I'm calling your employee reported. So everyone's being blocked and reported. Very few people are having discussions. And then going back to where you, you started to discuss what autogonophilia is, we've sort of lost focus that these are parts of our human components as people. I mean, what a fetish is, isn't necessarily going to be good or bad as you know, someone might even say fetishes are part of all culture. Certainly the fetish as an anthropological signifier is part of every culture. Um, when you when you were speaking though about the homosexual men who were you said girl like they had girl like behavior, and then you talk about men who are let's say masturbating um, with women's underwear. To what degree might some of these reasons behind transitioning or behind this what is called gender identity today? To what degree are men experiencing these behaviors? Because perhaps men's rights has not gone very far in terms of being able to, like, I can go out of my house dressed any way I want, literally. There is not one thing that you could tell me, I dare you to put on this, and it would make anyone blink an eye. 
because I am actually freer than you to wear anything I want and to have no one bat an eye. You, however, would struggle if I were to make a list of 10 things of you and I dare you to wear this. You see what I'm saying? There's this taboo culturally and performatively for men. So when you say that, you know, these, these young gay men, let's say, who was raised in an environment of homophobia and was made to feel girl-like because he felt girl-like because largely culture. I mean, there is no inherent girl identity. There's not really. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would go as far as, I understand what you're saying, but I think I probably wouldn't go as far as you have. When you're talking about children, let's talk about the, the uh, transvestitic cases first, because they're so clear. You know, nobody is pressuring an eight-year-old boy to suddenly become absolutely fixated on his sister's bathing suit. You know, there is nothing in society that's whispering in his ear, go grab your mother's panties and jerk off in them. You know, this is something that is coming from within. This, this arises within the boy. This impulse arises within the boy. I don't care how many uh, Victoria's Secret ads he's watched. <laughs> he's, not, he's not getting the ad to go raid his mother's underwear drawer or his sister's underwear drawer to get undergarments to masturbate in from that. Um, so I, I think that in that particular case, there, you know, everything interacts with uh, societal uh, messages. How could it be otherwise? Um, but I think there is something about those boys. There, there is some germ there that is not coming, uh, is not originating in the outside environment, but is originating in the boy. Uh, clearly, learning has to be involved because we did not have. I don't know, tan pantyhose in the, in the pampas where humans evolved, right? Uh, and people, people can develop a specific fetish for tan, tan, tan pantyhose. What I think is that every boy does not exit the womb with an equal capacity for developing a fetish. The content of that fetish might vary, but I don't think everybody has an equal capacity for that kind of erotic mislearning. You're listening to Savage Minds. We hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We depend on listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. I understand about that side, about the anagonophilia side. I was more asking about the young boy who's been made to feel that he's a girl because homophobia was par for the course in much of the 20th century. Okay. I mean, are, are the kinds of cases of, let's say, men who present uh, themselves as trans-identified, are they becoming fewer and fewer? or is anyone actually cataloging this as yeah. gay rights have become more mainstreamed? Well, people have documented, and I believe this is true from my own casual observations, that the homosexual type of male to female transsexual predominates in Asia and in third world countries, whereas the autogonophilic type predominates in Western countries, Europe and North America. 
I think there are social reasons for that. I think that there probably are just as many autogynophilic transsexuals in Asia or third world countries. But in those countries, it would be unthinkable for a man to leave his wife and essentially desert his children to pursue life as a male. Whereas in North America and Europe, it's now valorized. You know, that the whole stunning and brave thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I think that social factors do influence why it is that uh, the bulk of male to female transsexuals are now the autogynophilic type. I think is because social pressure to stay in your lane and tough it out as, as a husband and father, uh, those social pressures have been relaxed in the West, but not so much in the Far East or in the third world. Um, I don't know if there is a smaller absolute number of homosexual male to transsexuals. There might be, or they might just seem smaller because they are now so overwhelmed in number by the autogynophilic type. Well, that's what I was curious about because you have a lot of feminists who raise this as an issue and even a, um, they reject it outright in terms of, especially lesbians, and I understand why. There's been uh, the cotton ceiling, which is this, uh, it's not just a theory, it's a reality that there have been, not all or most, but there are certain trans-identified males who identify as lesbians and have put pressure on women and young women and even girls to express attraction for them all the way through sexual acts with them. And this has outraged lesbians who already feel that their lives and identities have been co-opted by what they view as a well-funded lobby because there are parts of the transgender community that are extremely well-funded, lobbies that have emanated from the gay and lesbian community itself, which have transitioned their mantra from gay rights and lesbian rights to trans rights because AIDS was no longer a pressing issue within the gay community and women, well, we're just second-class citizens. So let's get on to real women, the one with penises, right? And this is how women feel in general. I have to say, I've spoken to so many and I get their outrage. Uh, I am very outraged at days about this subject because when I'm watching, let's say, uh, The L Word, then it's been rebooted and it's all about transsexuals and one or two or three episodes of the few they ran this year or last year, uh, I begin to see that our identities, our lives, as women even, not just lesbians, are mirrors. And I think that sits very uncomfortably with women because for centuries, certainly right around the time of the French Revolution in Europe is when there was a concerted women's rights movement. It was more within like the Jacobin and the French Revolution uh, backdrop, even workers from South America who were living in France. There's a lot written about this, but women have had to fight. They had to fight just to leave the house because people would say, you can't leave the house because there's no toilet for you. And there were no toilets for them. So women have had to fight historically for everything. And now years later, we're being told that 
no offense, but I'm just going to say it in the way that this is framed. Men in dresses are telling us that they're real women and that we have to sleep with them. And the outrage is palpable. I, I sympathize with it. I feel it. How do we cross this bridge where now becoming a woman for these men who are often not even suffering from gender dysphoria because it's been so popularized transgender that there's a one could even argue there might even be fetishistic motivations i'm not laying a judgment it's just from what i am reading and seeing there's many more reasons than the two you've just given sadly and it's become much easier for someone in certain countries to get treatment or to just proclaim I'm a woman, I'm not taking anything off my body, I'm not taking any hormones, I ID as this, I'm a lesbian, let me in. And I think that the, you know, there's a huge bridge to cross now where the cheerleading to allow these men to identify as women or as lesbians vis-a-vis -vis, uh, legal fiat, and then women who are saying, whoa, I want to support everyone who's suffering from every kind of condition you might be able to name, but I don't agree. How do we reach this, meet this abyss between the two sides, if at all? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I have, I, I, I think, uh, I have to confess that some of these contemporary problems, I don't real, I don't have any solutions for, because as I've explained to you, Already, you know, my experience, uh, my firsthand clinical experience in the gender area was back in days when the whole situation was different. It would have been unthinkable back in the 1980s for male to female transsexuals to, to pressure lesbians and say, you have some kind of moral obligation to sleep with me, um, you know, as part of your commitment to the feminist sisterhood. Uh, you know, things like that just didn't happen. I, 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 I don't, I don't know what to do about that. I mean, there has been a lot of feminist pushback. I think it's, um, and I, I don't know how it's perceived by. I don't know if society at large is even aware of it. I mean, certainly lesbians are aware of it because they're aware of lesbian spaces being um, now populated by male to female transsexuals. And feminists are aware of it, but I don't know how much the average person really grasps um, the peculiar situation of lesbians who have male to female transsexuals uh, coming into their spaces and trying to guilt induce them into having sex. I don't know how much the world at large understands that. Well, I agree. Many people don't and they won't as long as they're getting kicked off of social media and editors won't run stories on this. I started writing about this in 2013. A few years later, my editor said, sorry, we can't run any more gender critical pieces because we get too many threats. And there you have it. And as you know, well, maybe you don't, but the case of Megan Murphy, who was kicked off Twitter for saying, something not only reasonable, she was echoing the very terms of identifying the person about whom she was speaking. So she wasn't actually misgendering anyone. She was using the same terms that that person had used for themselves. And I do have to wonder if maybe there's, this is all stirred up and become the mini atomic bomb that it's become 
because of a fluke of various historical and cultural happenings being some of the following. Uh, children in the 90s were hyper curated through medication such as Ritalin. Every child had some kind of complex. It was our, they were um, uh, hyperactive disorder. Oh, what's the four letter one? Everyone seemed to have that. Everyone in Brooklyn in the 90s <laughs> who had kids, their kids were on Ritalin and ADHD, that was it. Yeah. And then we found, you know, late 90s to the early knots, uh, autism was everywhere. Again, I'm not saying that any of these conditions are not real, but we saw an explosion in their diagnoses. We saw helicopter parenting also in the 90s and throughout the early 2000s. And then we saw uh, social strategies for dealing with these parents' ideas of how their children should be handled in the public sphere. Um, there's a very funny Billy Crystal Bette Midler film when they are taking care of their grandparents and they learn that their grandson's baseball team, everyone wins, you know? It's a great moment when Billy, uh, Billy Crystal's like, wait, they lost. You what? No, everyone wins. <laughs> and this kind of loss of objectivity, because if we can't see that one team wins and one team loses, then, and we can't see that sex is real and gender is socially constructed, uh, then we do enter into murky waters. And this contiguous to uh, Jerry Springer, Oprah Winfrey, uh, let's just say late Phil Donahue from the late 70s onward, where we had confession TV. Everyone empathizes in the audience. You know that you're with a good group of people if they moan loud enough or if they show enough horror when Jerry Springer would inevitably have women wrestling topless. I don't know how he pulled that off. And, you know, it was just this circus culture of, of false or real emotion, depending on what show you tuned into. And all of this just coincidentally rising into the early 2000s and all of a sudden people are shocked that we're calling men in dresses women and they're able to convince an entire society that a penis is female. I'm, I'm sure you've seen that, right? The female penis. Yeah. And yeah. where women in the UK in cancer research are being told people with the cervix, you got to get your test done, <laughs> which goes over like a lead balloon with immigrants because you ask most people who have a fourth grade education uh, who are not native English speakers what a cervix is, you know? And the same thing, uterus havers, cervix havers, pregnant people, menstruating people, on and on. It's very dehumanizing. Flip that switch though, men are not getting that. You're never seeing penis havers, prostate havers. You're not seeing ejaculators or mine this is mine, but you feel free to use it, front noodlers. I, I mean, it's just amazing the dehumanization that is done to women in the name of this identity. And I do understand the pushback. Years ago, when I was told how the shark was jumped with the trans issue, I didn't believe it at first. I really didn't. I thought the person telling me was nuts. I thought she was even a man hater. I mean, I thought all kinds of things, but I did not believe her. 
And the next day I set about, I was living in London. I set about and read up and my jaw dropped at my computer. I could not believe that what this woman had told me the day before was a hundred percent correct. So how do you sit with this as someone who, you know, you've, you're 75 now, right? You have had a great career. You've written some great pieces of research on this issue and other issues related to pedophilia. How do you square this in the terms of uh, a human continuum and a society that needs to get along? (laughs) Well, I I think the thing that bemuses me is, uh, is this. Patients do what patients do. That's why they're patients. We expect patients to have uh, views that that are out of line with reality or emotions that we can't empathize with. Um, And activists do what they do. An activist's job is to get as much as they can and leave it to others to set the limits. Activists do not set limits on themselves. Activists go as far as they can and wait for other people to set the limits. So patients and activists are what they are. What is wrong with everybody else? What is wrong with the human resources departments? What is wrong with the hospital administrators? What is wrong with all the people who are not activists and who are not transsexuals who are going along with some of these absurd things and in some cases uh, legislating them into law? What's wrong with the rest of us? I think that's the question, not what's wrong with transsexuals or what's wrong with activists. What's wrong with everybody else who is not just tolerating this, but advancing it, you know? Good question. Good question. Also, the fact that you mentioned at the very beginning that uh, that this group of patients were not always the easiest to deal with. And one thing I've been noticing, and again, this is not to paint all trans-identified people with the same brush, but I do notice that um, there's a propensity to really narcissistic behavior. It's all about the person, their identity, and everyone capitulating to it. And I, I've compared this to the fact that if, you know, I'm Patty Hearst and I fall in love with my kidnapper, am I to marry my kidnapper? Is that the psychological response that we meet the paraphilia or we meet the neuroses or whatever the condition is with its very problem. So, you know, do you tell a patient who's a kleptomaniac, well, let me go to this website and you can get a free visa gold so you won't have to steal again. Why is it that the answer to someone feeling quote unquote, like a woman or like a man is resulting in acceding this therapeutically? And I don't say this to critique you or others in the field. I do say this, though, because oftentimes in the therapeutic situation, when there is a a diagnosis of some sort, the idea isn't necessarily to seed it. It's also to address the issue and maybe uncover what's behind it rather than to become it, if you follow. Uh, Yeah, and and I think this, this, again, gets back to one more difference between contemporary clinicians and clinicians back in my day. If we had a patient who actually thought that reassignment surgery was going to change them from one sex into another, we would regard that as a contraindication for surgery. 
that would be a sign that this patient is not well enough in touch with reality to actually be getting reassignment surgery. So, you know, sometimes I see on my Twitter feed, people send me accusatory tweets, you know, what's wrong with medicine that you tell patients they can change sex? Well, I don't know what contemporary clinicians do, but in my day, clinicians did not tell patients they could change sex. If a patient really thought that their sex was going to change, that would be regarded as a strike against approving that patient for surgery. And back when you started in your practice, were these uh, surgeries received legally with the right to change one's sex on paper? Uh, well, by the time I joined the gender clinic uh, in 1980, I think already in Ontario, you could get a change of sex on your birth certificate if you had undergone sex reassignment and you had to come with letters from two physicians attesting that you had undergone physical sex reassignment. Do you think from what you're reading and seeing over the last, let's say, 10 years, do you think that the ability to legally make that change based on having surgery or hormones or not. Do you think that that legal facet is making this debate harder to have and maybe more aggressive and likely more combative than it needs to be in the sense of if I have a psychological issue, I can tell you, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very private person, but at the same time, certainly, even if I weren't, if it were a psychological issue, I would want that for myself. And it seems that this is the one issue that has forcibly been made public, not just because one has to live in the sex of blah, 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 which I also have an issue. Of. I don't even know what that means to live as a woman. I really don't. And I've had three children like pop out of my body. I... I do reject the fact though, that we seem to have the legal fiat rushing through a lot of the aggression. And I'm wondering if from what you're seeing, what you've seen over the many decades you've worked in this, is the legal facet making the debate worse? The legal facet has changed. Uh, you know, it's, it's old fashioned now it would be, be seen as retrograde to require a patient to undergo sex reassignment to change their documents. Now, the issue in, in other jurisdictions is it should simply be the declaration of someone's subjective gender identity should be the basis for changing documents, not the fact that they've undergone surgery. Back in the days when it was surgery, this was a contained matter. You know, now that it's just self-declaration, I feel like a woman, I feel like a man, it's a whole different ballgame. Um, well, this is it. I mean, when the feminists complain, and rightfully complain, I should say, that they feel fetishized, it comes down to this. John Money tried to locate gender as an essence. Women know that gender is nothing but stereotype. And this is why I don't think the two sides can ever meet, because it's not just that gender has a different definition from feminists to uh, genderists themselves or identitarians, but because gender can only be visible as stereotype. For instance, back to my chocolate mousse, if you cook a chocolate mousse, does that make you a woman? Of course not. 
And if I weld the side of a boat, does that make me a man? Of course not. But these are ideas that were not always as we state them today. They were once upon a time, I would have been told, whoa, you're going to burn yourself with that lady. Sit your lovely ass down or your whatever rear end down and let me handle that. And, you know, I've experienced this in my life. I was in the back of a car in Morocco where I was told I couldn't sit near the window because of my delicate nature and sand. I don't, I still don't understand that. But, and I was told this by Western men, by the way, uh, not by Moroccans. I find that so much of what gender is, is completely stereotyped. So back in the time of money, he was living in an era of hyper stereotypes because gender was hyper present. Today, I would think it should be less, but it seems to have been more exaggerated than even, let's say the 1970s or 80s, when there was a brief reprieve from gender, at least I felt it. Well, it, it depends on what, I, I understand the, the attractiveness of analyzing current gender phenomena in terms of feminist theory. I think there's a limitation to analyzing gender identity disorders uh, using only the conceptual apparatus of feminist theory. There are many aspects of this pathology that really are not explainable in terms of either social pressures or uh, uh, concepts like patriarchy, misogyny, sexism. Uh, you, you, I've seen patients, for example, who uh, would be, if they had to, they would get a vaginoplasty and continue, continue living outwardly as men, you know, but they want a vagina. Now, it's hard to say that this is a result of uh, sex stereotypes, right? A guy wants a vagina because he wants a vagina because he wants a vagina. Uh, and, I, and I think that one can't, uh, in, in a clinical context, at least for clinicians who were adequately trained, I'm not sure how many still are, but you, you see phenomena that you say, you know, this is, this is an individual psychopathology developed from somewhere inside this person's own brain. This is not something being imposed by uh, social standards or stereotyping or, or ads for women's products. You know, some of it is just, is just internally driven. Uh, and that, that that's kind of a you know it's something that I, I I don't I don't want to I don't want I don't like to get into arguments with anybody on Twitter but sometimes I think the attempt to take the familiar conceptual apparatus of feminism the concepts of patriarchy misogyny sexism and use only those concepts to explain transsexualism it's not adequate and in a way it plays the same game as the transsexuals it's saying this is something we can talk about entirely in socio-political terms no need to get into nasty insulting things about psychopathology and mental disorder and i felt that for a long time that the feminists are unwittingly playing by the terms of debate set by the trans activists everybody is now agreeing to talk about these phenomena as social you know. I see. No, I see what you're saying. And I do, I do, I would add this though. When 
there was a, a trans identified female who, you know, she identified as a man, went to a gym in East London. This happened two and a half years ago, was kicked out. Pink news, well, no news ran stories about this. It was silent in the media. And the feminists were very quick to say, yeah, because women, no one cares about women. We're seeing kickups and dust storms over largely males who identify as trans women. And I, I even hesitate, I really don't even like to use this term in the sense of it is what the language has been that slippery slope for what many women view their rights being lost, for what I would say is um, the individual's right to use words to, to paint reality for themselves. Because again, my moose might suck, but I can have that delusion that it's excellent and you can go and write a Yelp, Yelp review about how you'll never eat at my house again and we're all fine. When it becomes a political power push against a group of people, women who have historically been objectified, um, you know, you could say, oh yes, but there's Playgirl. Well, no, it's not the same kind of object objectification. The way that pornography in film and an image and, and even internet now, has used women's bodies when one says, well, he just wanted to have a surgical hole in his body, that sets off something for women who have historically been surgical holes for men. I'm, I'm sorry to put it like that, but that's how, uh, well, I'm, I'm filtering from my feminist Ouija board here, but this is what I would say that feminists would respond to this. I understand that psychological issues are personal. So then playing the devil's advocate to what you said, why has the trans lobby taken what should be a personal psychological issue into the political arena? Because they've opened the door to feminists calling them any number of adjectives, right or wrong. Well, they've done it because of their, they don't like the label of mental disorder. This is, this is uh, this is offensive to them. And for sure, the next push will be to get transsexualism out of the DSM and out of the uh, World Health Organization's equivalent, which is called the ICD, uh, the International Classification of Diseases. The only reason this isn't well underway is because it creates a conundrum. How are you gonna get third-party payment for hormones or reassignment surgery if there is no disorder. You see, right now you can get some, you can get third-party payment, I think in any Canadian province from a provincial health insurance plan because transsexualism is a disorder. Therefore, it'll be covered by your provincial health insurance plan. If transsexualism is no longer officially a disorder, what becomes the rationale for third-party payment by either private or public health insurance much less any kind of medical intervention right right it has to be a disorder under our current model so what you will see eventually in my prediction is transsexualism being redefined as a wrong body disorder it will no longer be a mental disorder it will be a wrong body disorder and then you know, sex reassignment and hormones can go on before and the same money will change hands for the same people. This is what I think will happen. Like body dysmorphia, you mean? 
No, like his body dysmorphia is a psychological condition. That's you true. Nothing wrong with their body. This is going to have to be redefined for insurance payment that there is the wrong body. <laughs> but this becomes then, Ray, an impossibility to prove. I, I'm sure you know this. I mean, it, it, this all reminds me of medieval trial by fire, auto de fe. I mean, and at the same time, as you just said, for every trans person who says this is a psychological is not a psychological disorder there is another who says it is i mean Anne lawrence also acknowledges autogonophilia as a reality for transgender people so the, it seems like the debate isn't just between feminists and trans identified people but it's also amongst trans identified people Yes, you're absolutely right. There still are trans identified people who, who prefer the label transsexual. And there are those like Anne Lawrence, and she's not the only one who will frankly say that autogynephilia was at, in some way a contributor to my decision to transition. I predict they will simply be, um, well, they'll be kind of Uncle Tom's, you know, they're old people who were poisoned by the old, the, who internalized the old prejudices, who internalized the old wrong ways of thinking, and, and they'll be negated and uh, uh, and 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 uh, you know uh, neutralized in that way. They're on the wrong side of history. But there's no other way you could continue with third party insurance payment if there's no disorder. So it's going to have to be a wrong body disorder. Or the way it's going in places like Australia, the UK, and so forth, where people can just self-declare. Yeah, but you can self-declare all you want. But if you want to get a vagina or if you want to get a neophallus, somebody's got to do it for you, and those procedures cost money. True. Um, I do wonder, though, just like with the last DSM uh, on which you worked, if this is to go out of the DSM, and it's no longer a mental disorder or a dysphoria. Are we playing with fire here? I mean, I know you've done work on, on pedophilia, and you, you dealt with the category of contented pedophilia with the work of Richard Green and William Donahue, who were at odds with how to remove, one wanted to remove pedophilia from the DSM-4, I believe, and the other wanted to remove the criterion uh, the second criterion um, of fantasizing, oh, I'm sorry, of having distress after fantasizing about pedophilia, even if this kind of pedophilia did not have a live object, a, a subject, a child. Um, I know that feminists have been outspoken about this from places like, you know, in the UK, there's an organization, a uh, historical <laughs> group called PI that wanted to mainstream uh, the same-sex desire for children. Is there a danger that we're just opening the floodgates to things that can be very harmful to people who simply lack the voice, the economic means to speak out, and so forth and so on? I mean, you know, who's going to care about the poor children being uh, effectively abused sexually if, at the end of the day, Western very upper middle class or bourgeois institutions are saying, but it's just another sexuality. Well, I, I think you have to consider what interest groups are going to push back. I think there would be a lot of pushback from parents at the idea of depathologizing pedophilia. 
Right. Now, they're also, I mean, one of the, what, one of the things I've thought about a lot with regard to these rapid onset gender dysphoria cases is uh, one of the groups that has the most skin in the game, the most motivation to push back against their, against schools encouraging kids to transition are parents. But and so they're the natural group to push back and they have pushed back, but they are so much hampered by the fact that they don't want to embarrass, they don't want to out their kids. Uh, they don't, they, they have a, a, an inhibition against going public because they don't want it to be known that their kids are changing gender. They don't want to alienate themselves from their kids. They don't want their other children to be embarrassed by the fact that they have a trans sibling. So parents are inhibited from fighting back to the extent that I think they would like to fight back. So I think with each of these things, when we consider what are the dangers that this other particular thing will get depathologized or normalized, you have to say, well, who would push back and how well placed are they to push back? And I think that the people who would push back against normalization of pedophilia uh, don't have the same uh, obstacles that parents have wanting to push back against their kids uh, developing rapid onset gender dysphoria. I see what you mean. And plus there's a lot of, of positivity aimed at parents who are brave as well. The brave label doesn't just get stuck on the child. It's mostly on the parents who are brave enough to support their child, right? Yeah, Munchausen's by proxy, it's been called. Well, exactly. And we've seen a lot of that. I mean, there's been a lot of criticism about the Jazz, the jazz Jennings tele-documentary series. Um, I couldn't watch it. I felt like I was watching a postmodern circus. I mean, a cruel, cruel <laughs> circus. And, and I do, I mean, I do say this out of concern because uh, while the feminists have been labeled the cruelest of transphobes, I actually think the ones coming down about the transitioning of children are the kindest. And I say this because I think there's nothing crueler than inculcating a child under a lie and dismantling their bodily autonomy and privacy and functioning. This is playing out already, as you've seen with the Kira Bell case in the UK. Um, it's just, it's very distressing to know that in the crosshairs, there's been a concerted effort to place children because they are not only the most vulnerable, but I think someone knew early on that parents would have to kowtow or lose their child, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it has happened in some jurisdictions. There have been cases where parents, usually fathers, uh, have in some way or other lost, lost custody because they uh, didn't want to go along with transitioning a child. Uh, it's a strange situation. It's very interesting also how identity has become more and more a part of our, con our common psychology today. Not just gender identity, but identity of all sorts, where people are now finding themselves and their true identity. What do you think that has brought this on, psychologically speaking? Oh, gee, I, you know, it, it's, as I said before, I'm not, I'm, or maybe I didn't, but I'm not really a public intellectual. I don't think that much about these kinds of social trends. I think it's, I think one thing that's been a player in a lot of what's happened is the internet. Uh, the internet has allowed people 
for example, autogynephilic male to transsexual, male to female transsexuals, they would have been a pretty isolated group prior to the internet. Now, uh, people are able to get together from the comfort and privacy of their own office or their own bedroom and feed into each other's psychopathology. This is unprecedented in human history. You know, that people with inherently rare disorders can find each other and form up into echo chambers, uh, telling each other that they're right and the world is wrong. So this is something else that's, that's a factor in some of the stuff that's happening. And there's no turning, turning this back. The internet's not going to go away. We're not going to uh, stop having the internet because teenagers are finding each other and encouraging each other to uh, think of themselves as the, uh, the other sex. Thank you.